Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good morning. This is Jay Levine, I'm the editor of the Antitrust Law Source and your host for these podcasts. And today I'm joined with uh, one of our um, star litigators out of our Cleveland office, Brody Butlin. How are you doing, Brody? Uh, I'm doing well, and you are very kind, Jay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, only telling the truth. Um, today we're actually going to speak about a pretty uh, interesting issue. Uh, Brody, besides being uh, a star litigator, is also a um, strength training aficionado. Um, he is a weightlifter and also a uh, strength coach. And he's written an interesting article talking about, where uh, it's entitled, Government Licensure for Personal Trainers, and your subtitle is really what I love, A Solution in Search of a Problem. First of all, Brody, where did you publish this? Let's give some pub. Oh, sure. It's, uh, it is with a group called the Starting Strength Coaches Association, which is run by uh, Mark Ripito in Wichita Falls, Texas. Uh, Mark is a... He's been he's a seasoned vet in the industry. He's been around for nearly 40 years in the gym industry. He himself was a competitive power lifter who won several regional competitions, and uh, he also has written what many consider to be the single greatest book on strength training that has ever been written, called Starting Strength, which is currently in its third edition. And I mm-hmm. would say it is a it is a must read for anybody who is interested in these uh, in these types of areas. The Starting Strength Coaches Association publishes articles in various areas uh, like this. So I've written a couple legal articles for them. We also have doctors and physical therapists who write on their particular areas as well. Interesting. I noticed you have a Bachelor of Science. Is that in strength training? It is not, actually. It was in mathematics. And, uh, (laughs) And by the time I got to my senior year of college, I realized that uh, I had sort of topped out in my math ability, and I did not, and I didn't want to spend my time with uh, academics and math. So, gotcha. that, uh, so I went to law school. Gotcha. A former uh, math professor and PhD in UCLA mathematics, so once told me, "Be good in math, don't go into it." Uh, I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> so, uh, so give us a little bit of a, a background as to sort of this government licensure issue and, and what exactly you were. Uh, you were writing about. Sure. Uh, and I will say, just by way of background, that traditionally personal training has not been a licensed profession. It's The idea was that the consumer would be able to decide what kind of training they wanted to receive. But over the last decade, there has been a push to require licensure from, gov- uh, from the government of the personal training profession. And there are six states since 2005, I believe, who have seriously considered personal training licensure laws that would, through criminal liability, forbid providing personal training services without a license. Um, let, are, let me let me stop you there for a second. You said there's been a push, but who has the push been by? Are there consumer groups that are worried about this thing, or is this by the legislators themselves? Uh, oddly enough, we actually have a pretty good idea of who is behind it. There is a group called the uh, United States Registry of Exercise Professionals, also known as U.S. Reps, and that consists of seven major personal training organizations in the country. Uh, it, it really is sort of an alphabet soup. It's the, the Cooper Institute, 
the ACE, the ACSM, the NAS or the NCSF, the NSCA, and uh, the NETA, and there's one more I'm forgetting. Uh, I think the the Pilates Method Alliance. That's the other mm-hmm. member. And since 2008, they have certain U.S. reps members have been pushing the local D.C. legislature to regulate personal training and to create a uh, and to require licensure. You also uh, see their members in trying to influence other legislators in other states. Mm-hmm. So this is really not a consumer grassroots movement in any sense of the word. It is actually a deliberate effort by certain personal training uh, organizations to, in essence, medicalize the personal training profession. And they're very open about that on their website. In fact, if you go to usreps.org, they will talk about the initiatives they have in in their lobbying efforts. Okay. Well, let's let's get to sort of – Okay, so you got some people within the industry who sort of want to want to have licensure over the industry. Um, why is that bad? Well, I, I think what I'll do is, is give you the short version, and then I know we're probably <laughs> going to, uh, and then we'll probably uh, uh, talk about each one individually. Um, but the the upshot is that personal training licensure will inherently limit competition and innovation in the fitness industry. And there's and there's three ways that it will do that. Number one mm-hmm. is it limits consumer choice as to the particular type of personal trainer that one can hire. Uh, second, it creates an oligopoly, in essence, that reduces the number of personal trainers and increases the price of personal training. Mm-hmm. And then sort of the, the, the issue that's not talked about as much, but it's in all of these proposed uh, bills, is a mandatory creation of what are called practice guidelines, which in essence create a standard for how everyone should be trained. And at least in my view, that will stifle innovation and study in the industry, which I think has led to some really great uh, discoveries and some really great theory over the over the past uh, well really the past century that it's that it's sort of been studied. Okay, well let let me let's go back over at least one or two of those, and let me be cynical for a moment. Uh, we know we saw this in the North Carolina dental um, decisions where a group of dentists essentially wanted to regulate out the teeth whitening services of some of these, you know, kiosk services that are available for teeth whitening and the FTC took them to task and uh, went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said it wasn't antitrust immune. But we saw a bunch of would-be competitors trying to license out other competitors. And in some respects, this seems to be the same sort of thing where a group of, a group of people in the industry want to create licensure that would essentially keep out others or at least keep the group small. And as you said, would raise the price. Now, since you and your group are in the industry, why aren't you okay with that? I mean, if that means higher prices for you, that that would seem to be in your economic interests. Why are you opposing it? Well, and I will say, I don't just because your view may be considered cynical doesn't mean it's wrong. <laughs> um, I uh, it, here here is the basic problem. 
I have found through Internet searching approximately 140 different organizations in the United States that provide personal training certifications. Mm -hmm. uh, my organization, Starting Strength, is one of them. You also have things like CrossFit, the American College of Sports Medicine, USA Track and Field, USA Weightlifting, a, a very huge or a vast array of different types of certifications, many of which focus on different aspects of fitness. Now, the problem with requiring licensure is that every proposal limits the number of acceptable, quote, uh, licenses. So mm -hmm. the, the most that I have seen in any of these particular laws would allow, or, well, let me back up. Um, most of these uh, laws require to be a proper license, that it be accredited by something called the National uh, the, the national uh, uh, or the NCCA. Um, it, it's, a, it's basically a national accrediting service. There are only 16 personal training certifications that are accredited by the NCCA. So mm -hmm. if these laws end up going forward, they will, in essence, uh, prevent over 120 personal training organizations from being able or, or prevent their members from being able to coach people. My organization happens to be one of those that is not accredited by the NCCA. Now, we have mm -hmm. tried to achieve accreditation, but candidly, they lost our paperwork twice. So ah. it's, uh, so, so, and then eventually the organization just decided that we would let consumers choose whether they valued our services or not. So right. the problem is, it, it, the entire industry itself will not benefit from this. It would only be a very small subset of the industry, which just so happens to be the subset that is pushing for the licensure in the first place. Gotcha. Well, let me, okay, let me address or ask hypothetically, one of your issues is that it, this is a one-size-fits-all type of regulation. And admittedly, there are, you know, uh, Fitness training um, runs the gamut. You got those who run, those who lift, those who do I don't know gymnastics, those who do yoga, those who do whatever, and they all sort of fit under this rubric of fitness training. What if the licensures were sort of field specific? Would that ameliorate some of your concerns? I still don't think it would, and um, because one of the problems I believe is that. People, how you train somebody will depend on the particular goals they have. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult to come up with a standard of practice individually for, for example, running, or individually for strength coaching, or individually for Olympic weightlifting. But aside from that, there's a lot of disagreement in the industry as to how you approach that. Mark Ripito, for example, believes that pretty much every aspect of athletic uh, endeavor, or, or, or I should say athletic prowess, whether it be things like accuracy or power generation or acceleration, all ultimately benefit from strength. So when he trains somebody, no matter what their goal is, whether it be marathon running, whether it be boxing, whether it be uh, Olympic lifting, he uses a strength base for anybody that he trains. Now, that mm -hmm. is not necessarily the consensus in the industry, and, and I think depending on who you ask, you're going to get very different views. 
So one of the problems with creating a standard of practice for different industries is, again, you are inherently stifling innovation by trying to box people into a particular mindset. And I just don't – I think that this is ultimately something that is best left to, frankly, debate and discussion and something that we should trust consumers to make their best judgments on from what they read. Well, I mean, we know from the FTC and and, and other competition authorities that, um, you know, sometimes licensure is necessary, but certainly they are not in favor of, you know, uh, ad hoc or certainly a widespread licensure because, as you pointed out, it always raises the cost, raises the cost to consumers and will reduce the output and and can often reduce choice and, and innovation. So I guess in balancing whether, you know, the, the, I think you've, you've articulated well sort of the disadvantages of, of having this licensure, but I guess we, we need to balance the advantages or the need for such licensure. So what is, what, why do the proponents think that there is a need for the licensure, and why do you think that that doesn't outweigh some of, as antitrust lawyers would put it, the anti-competitive effects? Well, and you are absolutely correct that any time you look at a licensing scheme, uh, you should always look at what the benefits are. For example, for doctors, we, we clearly don't want to hand people scalpels and have them cut open other people without some kind of, uh, of, of demonstrated competency, some minimum level of competency. So I completely understand but here's the right. interesting thing about licensure for personal training. We don't actually have any data on the injury rates from personal training because nobody's actually tried to collect it. The closest thing we have is, the, is data on injury rates for recreational weight training. Mm -hmm. and, and that data interestingly shows that recreational weight training is one of the safest physical activities that one can engage in. If you look at injury rates of activities like soccer, basketball, and, and even Zumba, the injury rates are literally hundreds of times that of recreational weight training, according to the data. And here's an interesting statistic to put this further in perspective. The injury rate for school PE class is more than 50 times that of recreational weight training. So, so, <laughs> so my kids don't want to go to PE. I have, I know, have well, something yeah. behind them. Well, yeah, seriously. Who knew the giant parachute was so dangerous? You know. <laughs> so, I love that activity. So, so I, really, and, and this is why I, I subtitled my article "A Solution in Search of a Problem." It's one thing if we actually have data showing that there is a problem in the personal training industry where you have people routinely being injured. But the data just doesn't exist. There's, not, there's nothing. The only thing that we have are selected anecdotes of someone who knows someone else who got injured. I have to confess, I'm actually a, the chairman of my uh, board at the YMCA. I've been on the board since 2011. I do not know of a single instance of somebody being injured in a personal training session not only in our particular YMCA, but in any of the greater Cleveland YMCAs. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, one has never occurred, but presumably if it was serious enough, I would have heard about it, and I just right. never have. So, By the way, um, just anecdotally, I've had, I've had my both knees operated on, and I've had my shoulder operated on, and have been a weightlifter on and off 
for, you know, since I've been 15 and have never suffered an injury as, as a result of weightlifting, but I have torn cartilage because of um, football. I dislocated my shoulder because of baseball or whatever, so I think my, my own personal experience sort of backs you up. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I think it really is interesting that even people who are really into weight training, if they get injured, it's very rarely because of weight training. It's usually because they were lifting a lawnmower out of the back of the car, or in my case, recently, I it was uh, I was injured while sleeping. So you can, I guess, I'm starting to be reminded of the fact that I'm not invincible after all. Uh, so yeah, it really is interesting that, uh, that all these other activities tend, the, the things that we usually do weight training to help us do, uh, those are usually the activities that end up giving us long-term injuries. Sure. So from a, from a, you know, again, from an antitrust or even a policy perspective, we know that licensure will raise costs, which is never a good thing, and raising costs almost always um, is always associated with reduced output and almost always associated also with, you know, with keeping would-be competitors out as well as reducing innovation. And as you just articulated, there doesn't seem to be any countervailing benefit to the licensure other than perhaps keeping the, the, the field small enough for those chosen few who um, have, you know, make the grade, so to speak, and, and allowing them to reap maybe super competitive um, prices. But are there any other kind of legal issues should this legislation go forward in kind of applying it, especially given kind of the broad nature um, of the participants that it would apply to? Well, and and thank you very much for uh, for that question because I, I haven't dealt with the legal issues or, or I'll say the nuts and bolts of this particular proposed legislation yet. Um, but if you actually look at the definition of personal training services in more or less any of the proposals, whether it be the D.C. Uh, proposal, which I, I actually um, I actually will mention an update on that uh, shortly, but whether it be D.C., whether it be Florida, whether it be Maryland, the language is so overbroad that it really could apply to any type of, of athletic coaching endeavor, and not just things like personal training in the gym, but spinning class, aerobics, uh, even arguably youth sports coaches who supervise kids in a weight room. So I think there's a very real possibility that many people who are not would not normally be considered part of the personal training industry might nonetheless still be bound by these laws. And I'll say it's it's not just me fear-mongering on this. Um, Allison uh, Litchie, who was at the time she she gave testimony before a uh, uh, D.C. Uh, government hearing in, um, I believe, June of 2013, uh, to talk about the D.C. personal training law. She was the head of the D.C. chapter of the Physical Therapy Association, which is uh, – and the D.C. Board of Physical Therapy would be the ones that actually implement the regulations in D.C. under the law. She mm-hmm. testified that the definition of personal training was, quote, very broad and could potentially encompass individuals who are not, in fact, personal trainers. So there, so, so here is somebody who would actually, her members would be charged with implementing the law who recognizes this problem. 
And I really, I very much fear that uh, that not only would personal trainers have a be burdened by this law, but even people like karate instructors might be, and uh, and that's another reason to to uh, oppose this legislation. Interesting, interesting. Well, yeah, and, and it's and it's even more interesting that the physical therapists, who uh, at some level are personal trainers, but are licensed separately and have their own boards and stuff like that would actually be charged with implementing these these proposed regulations. Isn't it a little funny, I think, for at least in D.C., that a profession that is charged with trying to rehabilitate people who are either chronically ill or injured or, or have some sort of a physical deformity would be implementing regulations to train otherwise healthy people? Who do not have any of those? I'm, I frankly don't know what qualifies them to make those determinations, and, and right. frankly, that's never been really explained by the D.C. government. Well, you had said there's an update on the, at least on the D.C. proposal. What is that? Yeah, see, D.C. was about to become the first jurisdiction in the nation to actually require licensure of personal trainers. In 2013, they passed part of a as part of an omnibus health bill. Uh, they created a um, authorizing statute to implement licensure regulations. Those were supposed to be released on September 22nd for public comment, the, the proposed regulations. But just two days ago, Councilman Jack Evans uh, of, of the D.C. City Council sponsored a bill to repeal that licensure law. Uh, the bill already has six co-sponsors. So, and, and I believe on a 14-member city council, that's, uh, that's really close to a majority vote. So it appears that those regulations have been tabled, or at least they will not be released to the public until that legislative mess sort of sorts itself out. Um, the short version is I think that you all in D.C. have really dodged a bullet at this point um, because, the, uh, be, because I do think that you, you were sort of on the precipice of um, being a, a failed experiment in personal training licensure. So uh, I am hopeful that uh, I'm hopeful that Mr. Evans's bill ends up getting passed, and that you will be able to avoid that. Well, I guess time will tell. But uh, but there's still jurisdictions around the country considering these um, types of proposals, right? A absolutely, and that's and that's one of the reasons why I even wrote this article in the first place. It's it, it usually is something that flies under the radar and nobody really knows about it. But almost every year since uh, 2008, there has been a push in some state around the nation to license personal training. And it's not just a red state or a blue state. These proposals come from New Jersey. They come from Georgia. They come from Massachusetts. Even Texas proposed a uh, voluntary registry back in 2011, I believe. So it, it's not a... Um, it's not a red or blue state issue. It's not a liberal conservative issue. The fact is there are pushes from a very small portion of the personal training industry to limit consumer choices and to, in essence, uh, protect their, their own, um, you know, protect an oligopoly that they create. And I just, I think it's wrong for the industry and I think it's wrong for the consumer. If people want to uh, read your article, is it, can it be found on the web? Absolutely. It can be found uh, not only on the Starting Strength website under the article section. There's uh, resources and then not just articles. There are terrific videos as well that I would strongly recommend anybody interested uh, watch. 
also on my website uh, or also on my page at the Porter Wright website. You can uh, you can download it off of that as well. Excellent. Well, this has been extremely informative, and uh, no doubt we will be discussing such topics in the future. I know Brody and I uh, plan future podcasts um, given <clears throat> the focus that the FTC has on health issues um, over the last several years, especially on supplements and on claims by you know, manufacturers that their, that their products um, increase health in some way, you know, just throw out this sort of a sketcher um, uh, consent decree um, that was entered into a couple of years ago. I know that's uh, a topic of your focus as well, Brody. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, given the um, given how the fitness industry has literally exploded over the last decade, um, the FTC and even state consumer protection organizations are starting to look a lot more closely at various fitness products, primarily supplements, but also, as you observed, even some fitness products like uh, like the Skechers walking shoes. Mm-hmm. So it is uh it is certainly something that uh that it, it's not an issue that's going to go away and I think that we're going to see even more enforcement in the future given just how how much the the gym and fitness industry has been growing um really because I I think people want to try to live healthier lives uh and it's becoming a much bigger deal. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> Oh, you can't open up a paper without seeing a new study or a new reference to obesity. And since we're all basically, you know, reminded daily of our need to lose weight and get more fit and and generally just take care of our health, um, I mean, it, it, there, it seems that there's every reason for that industry to continue its, its explosion um, with new products, new supplements, new dietary guidelines, and um, with that always brings people's desire to kind of uh, perhaps uh, make claims that they can't always substantiate. Well, yes. I mean, there there are, in the fitness industry, there are true believers and, and people who are really trying their best, but you also sometimes track snake oil salesmen as well, and uh, and I think that's I do think that the FTC and uh, similar state organizations will have a role to play in trying to protect consumers on that. And I think it's important that uh, supplement companies and uh, those who engage in the personal training profession are very careful to make sure that claims they make are true and, and supportable and not something that um, you know, and not and doesn't mislead consumers. So right. it's, uh, I mean, I know everybody wants to claim they have the best solution, and uh, and certainly a little bit of puffery is to be expected in the uh, commercial realm. But I, uh, but but they do need to be careful about uh, about when they when they're making claims as to what their products can do. So and, and certainly that's something that I uh, uh, that I'm helping um, various clients reason through from time to time. Excellent. Well, we will keep our listening and reading audience up to date on those. Uh, I am Jay Levine, your host of uh, Antitrust Law Source. I can be reached at by email, the letter J, L-E-V-I-N-E, at porterite.com. I'm on LinkedIn and also on Twitter, um, at J-A-Y-L-L-E-V-I-N-E. Um, Brody, you can be reached at? I can be reached uh, by email at bbutland at porterite.com. And if you would like to give me a call anytime, I am available at 216-443-2571. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today, and um, 
I hope everyone has a wonderful day, and stay tuned for further uh, blog posts and podcasts. Thanks a lot, Brody. Thank you, Jay. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about this. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.